All right, so we are here now. Let's kick it off. Is that good? Yeah. All right, we got Nemo Mathenge on, one of those wicked smart kids from Havid that I had the pleasure of meeting uh, probably about a month ago or so up at the Africa Business Conference. Uh, very good attendees there. Nemo was one of the cool kids in the room, uh, which I always try to find and leave the others behind. So um, we are on with the like rest- rhyming everything. That's awesome. What was that? Are you a poet? You're like rhyming everything. I'm trying. No, it's just how I talk. So it, sometimes it flows, sometimes it doesn't, you know. That's what this is all about. So we're joined by our co-hosts, Jason Wang, Akib, and we got a newbie on today, Gilbert Rios, who does a lot of our film and media work. Say hello, guys. Hey, what's up? Hi. Hey, what's up? What's up, everybody? Great. We're all good. Uh, And we got a really good guest today, a very strong, powerful woman, very accomplished, very smart, very driven. And has done some very interesting things in her life. So with that, we would love to hear a little bit about where you come from and, you know, a little bit how you grew up. Wow. Uh, first of all, I'm really honored to be here. And I'm very grateful that um, you've given me such an incredible introduction. It's kind of intimidating when you have that kind of introduction. You're like, okay, I really need to say some cold stuff. So I just first want to say thank you for that <laughs> cool introduction. Of course. Um, I, I'm actually originally from Kenya. I grew up in Nairobi, Kenya, which is in East Africa. And um, I always knew that I wanted to get into the entertainment business um, somehow. I think my first time to understand what that is was when I was like seven or eight years old, when I went up on stage and I sang with the help because that's my siblings were too small to sing with me. And that's the only person at that point. I was like, I'm just going to have the help sing with me. And I just started actually on um, stage where at that time in life, I'm going to tell you how, long ago that is but at that point being on tv meant either you're reading the news or you are in journalism which was something I wasn't interested in I always knew I wanted to tell stories so I started writing and scribbling into my exercise book as we'd call it in my notebook and I would write and start creating stories that I would give my siblings to act on stage. And I think around 12 years old is when I actually put a full-on play, like a musical. Um, And mostly this was in church doing like Christmas concerts and Easter concerts. And yeah, that's, I think that's where I started the whole writing and, and putting up stuff and, and putting up work and forcing my family members to, be part of it. Yeah. That's awesome. All right. Wow. So that's how you got started. Gilbert, I think you got some questions. Yeah. Um, so I'm interested. So you said you're from, uh, you're, uh, you came from Africa. That's mm-hmm. really interesting. How did you end up going to Harvard and what was that journey like? Wow. That is a journey as you called it. That's true. So um, I know I got to about 12 years old. So after I finished my primary school, I went to 
a high school that really used to be focused on uh, musicals and the arts. So I really, really started delving into the arts. And then I went to the university, did um, a bachelor's focus on communications, which was more broadcasting and screenwriting. Then moved to the States where I went to Howard University to do an MFA in film. When I was in D.C., I felt like I really needed to move to Hollywood. So before I even came back to the East Coast, I was before I even moved to Harvard, I was already originally in the East Coast doing my degree, my MFA at Harvard University. And but I felt I wanted more. I wanted to work in the business. Everybody kept talking about Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood. So I packed my little car seriously. The stories that you get to hear about people. And I parked, pack, packed my stuff in my little car, two-door uh, Mitsubishi, and drove to L.A. And that's how I started working the business. So fast forward many years later, I'm sure we'll definitely delve more into my life there. I felt that I've been in Hollywood for 16 years and I felt I wanted to start marrying arts and education. And that's how I came across this program that I'm doing right now, which is arts and education. And it's in the graduate school of, of education. So actually one of my old students who had been teaching uh, documentary film um, mentioned this program and he was an alumna at the time and he was like, oh my gosh, they have this real cool program. And when he was telling me about it, I, I was so interested in it, but it wasn't for me. I started telling one of the directors who I used to work with and I was like, I think this would really be, good, be a great program for you. And I, it didn't occur to me that I can actually do this program and truly it would build me up as an artist and as an educator because that's something I really, really, I am passionate about. So fast forward, like, Eight months later is when I looked at this program again and it kept coming back into my spirit. You know how in something that's lingering and you think, you know, it's meant for you. It kept coming back into my spirit. And I kept thinking, oh, my gosh, I really need to look deeper into this program. And that's how I did. I started researching on it and I applied for the program and I got in. Thank God. And that's how I, I got into Harvard. And now I'm doing this program and graduating in Maine. Awesome. Yeah, Nemo, one question I kind of had about uh, for you was I wanted to know more about this Mama Sweetie project. So I was kind of doing research before the podcast and getting a feel for some of your work. And this Mama Sweetie project is a documentary that seems super interesting to me. So can you kind of go over what was the inspiration behind that idea and what were some of the challenges you went through during production of that? Is this Jason? Yeah. Okay, I, I can. I think I'm now hearing your different voices. <laughs> what was my inspiration? So, Mama Sweetie, this was around 2007. I'd worked for a production company, and that production company actually had grown at the time. I was um, a pro I was manager of production of the company, and we used to do a lot of TV movies. And while I was in that company. I always used to pitch African stories because for me, I'd gotten to a point in my life where I felt I really need to do stories that I am passionate about, stories that that are about um, African descent, that stories that I'm I know of because I'm originally from Kenya, and so that job I. It was in 2007. There was a writer's strike. I don't know if you know much about the unions in 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 um, the Hollywood 
scene. And one of the unions is the Writers Guild of America. And the writers went on strike. And I think that has been the biggest strike since then, because a lot of production companies lost a lot of work and some had to shut down. And our production company was one of those companies. So it shut down. Um, so many of us lost our jobs. And so that actually ended up being a blessing. So I started looking at, you know what, this could be the time when I actually venture out to do um, a story that I love. And so this story came to me. I know that's a very cheesy comment that everybody's saying. The story came to me. But literally, I met um, I met a group of people who had been in Kenya and were working as missionaries. And they had met this woman called Patricia Sawo. And they wanted to do her story because they were kind of financing her project. But they were so moved by her story. And they're like, we need to look for a Kenyan producer who can help us put this story together. And so they come across me and they're like, hey, we have money and we're looking for a producer. Can you help us um, do the story? And I was like, let me think about it. 30 seconds later, I was like, I'm on board. So that's how the, the story was born. So. I started researching more about this story. We flew to Kenya. I put a team together. We flew to Kenya and we stayed there for about three weeks out in a place called Kitale, which is um, like eight hour flight, eight hour flight. Yeah, no, four hour, eight hour drive north of um, Nairobi. And this woman is HIV positive and she, she was I hate using the word infected because she told it, it was a lesson that I learned that people are not infected. People are living with a disease. And that's something that she taught us, which is a whole other story. And she got this disease from her husband who had been unfaithful to her. She had learned to forgive him and now was helping her community on how to deal with this disease that had become so rampant in that whole community. People were dumping kids at her doorstep. She was taking them in. She was educating her community um, how to live with HIV and AIDS and how they can be able to take care of themselves. I mean, it was an incredible story. So it was a no brainer. So we stayed out there for about three weeks and shot that um, documentary. Some of the problems or rather some of the shocks that we came across, that was the other question, right? You said inspiration and difficulties, right? Yeah. So I feel like uh, I did a little bit of, of film stuff in high school, obviously not to the same magnitude that you or other professionals are kind of doing it. But I mean, I realized just with that little bit of exposure, there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the camera that people don't realize that makes it a lot more difficult to put together a film. So I was kind of curious, you know, that being a really massive project to take on for someone like yourself? Like what were some of the challenges that people may not really think about initially? First of all, we are a very small crew, which being that it was a film that we're shooting all the way in Kenya, we had expenses. We had to really look at expenses and it's a documentary, which we were financing ourselves. It wasn't at that point, we hadn't sold anything to any big production company. So we were raising our own finances. So that being said, we were on a shoestring budget, literally. So my crew was very small. And when you have a small crew, you have to wear different hats. So one minute you're the producer, the next minute, minute you're the one who's running to get food for everybody. And you're the one who's distributing the food. 
Um, so those are some of the problems when you are on a shoestring budget. You really have to consider that who is doing multiple um, jobs and everybody has to be OK with it. That means you're working extra hours. That means you're doing 50 million things. The second thing was also that we were shooting at a place we're shooting in Kenya. And I will be frank with you in Kenya, people don't keep time. We don't, people don't know in that part of the world, it wasn't a professional setting where we have a production schedule and okay, we wake up at 8 a.m. We're going to start a uh, crew, crew call or the, um, the, the call time is going to be 9 a.m. and everybody's going to show up at nine. No, that didn't work. Our production schedule, we had to throw it into the trash by day two. Nobody was following any production time. Some of the things that we decided to shoot that day didn't work. Sometimes we'd show up at Patricia's house. She's not in a mood to shoot that day. So we have to flow with the time that she wants to start shooting. Sometimes it would be by noon. I mean, there are all of these things that we didn't expect and we couldn't control considering we're in a totally different environment that we are in. It was uncontrollable um, and we had to be okay with that. You really have to be, you just put a smile and do what you can do that day. Or we, sometimes we, we would decide, okay, we're going to do, we're going to shoot the stories of the kids, but then the kids don't want to talk. They're just staring at the camera. So you have to figure out how we're going to make them talk. So there are all these things that you, you kind, kind of try to plan for, but things don't always go the way you plan for them. Yeah, that that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, but um, I have a question for you. So, I'm from Guyana. Mm -hmm. uh, our whole group is kind of diverse. Uh, Gilbert has parents. His parents are from Colombia. Jason mm -hmm. has immigrant parents. Shane has immigrant parents. So I was kind of, and you're from Kenya. So I, I was am. kind of wondering, we where? I am from Kenya, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, we were kind of just, I was just kind of wondering how this kind of diversity, you kind of implement diversity in how you direct and how you create media. Like, what do you bring sort of a Kenyan flair to what, whatever you do? I do. And it's more and it's not only just a Kenyan flair because my team was very. Everybody was from different parts. And I'll be honest with you, for Mama Sweetie, I've worked different movies where I've had people from around the world. But Mama Sweetie was I was the only Kenyan on my crew. Everybody else was from the U.S. I have learned one big lesson in the years I've done this is to be very honest with yourself. What is the story that you want to tell? And once you know the kind of story you want to tell, then the people you pull onto your project will be able to reflect the story that you want to tell. Um, it's very important for you to be intentional on how you want to tell your story, because sometimes I would I can tell a story about Louisiana, but then I can't pull people from Africa to tell that kind of story. So you have to be very intentional both in front of the camera and behind the camera of how authentic you want your story to be and i think that's the only way you're going to make your crew diverse if you're the person who's writing your if your story is about guyana i would imagine the person who you want to be your script writer or the may the person who's the mastermind or the showrunner is the person who's from that area that's how you're going to be authentic with how you tell that story so for me, that is how I let that dictate for me on the diversity of my team. Make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. <clears throat> Thank you. Are, are you working on anything at the moment right now? 
I am. It's called homework and schoolwork. <laughs> um, other than that, <laughs> it's the worst movie ever, isn't it? Sorry. <laughs> right. Other than that, I'm actually yeah. I had to put some projects on hold. I have a feature that I can't really talk about right now because I'm still trying to get the rights um, of that feature, and I have. Um, music documentary that I've also been working on for a while that I have pitched it to different, I've pitched to different production companies and um, some networks, which right now I've only got doors slammed on my face, um, which is involved traveling around Africa and telling stories about our music. Um, those are some of the two projects that I have forefront right now that I've kind of put on hold that by the time I was getting into this program, they were the ones that I was actively working on. So it's a feature and a documentary. Very nice. Very nice. Um, Nima, one question I had for you was, especially recently in the past two years, you've seen the kind of success in Hollywood of a lot of African-American directors, such as Spike Lee, Ryan Coogler, especially with Black Panther, especially Jordan Peele as well. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of work to be done in terms of, as you're talking about diversity on your teams, but also diversity and ethnic representation in Hollywood, what do you see as some additional steps that I don't know, we as people or we as consumers of this media can take to work towards a more diverse set of, or a more diverse Hollywood? Um, consumers need to support these actors. I think I uh, support the filmmakers as consumers. I feel like, um, I'll be honest with you, I watched Jordan Peele's this is an example I'm giving. I watched Jordan Peele's uh, latest film, Us, and I didn't think it was very. It was it was as good as the get as the previous movie he did Get Out. But one thing I was very intentional is, is encouraging people just go watch his work, go see his work. I feel like if we would go and appreciate and see what is being put out there as consumers will be able to support a lot of these filmmakers. Ryan Coogler's movies have done well because people have intentionally gone to watch his work. Um, we need to be more intentional in going to the film theater, um, buying the work. Um, I think that as consumers, that's one way to really support filmmakers and support artists is to buy and see their work you have to see an artist's work there is no artist who does work so that it's put up in the room and nothing happens to them they do they, an artist does their work to put it out there so people may may eat up their work for lack of a better word and appreciate it in whatever way even if you you don't agree on the views or you don't feel that it speaks to you but support them still go watch it and 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 support the work that they do. I don't know if that's the question you are asking. Yeah, no, that that definitely that definitely helps. I was also kind of wondering, you know, like what are some significant obstacles that still exist for I guess filmmakers of minorities to kind of that, that they still have to overcome in Hollywood today to get to that level of exposure that some other directors don't have to experience. I think the decision making is still very not diverse. Um a lot of the meetings that I've attended or sat in are not. People are represented, the diversity is represented, but they are not the decision makers. There's got to be more decision makers like um, Shonda Rhimes, that's a decision maker, or Kenya Barris, who's the mastermind behind uh, Blackish. The more we have showrunners who are diverse or studio heads who are diverse, 
um, the more we are going to start seeing things shift in Hollywood. We're still seeing a lot of um, diversity further down below the line. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the above below the line concept. And also when it comes to executives, um, the senior executives, the studio heads, um, I love that uh, Channing Dungey, who was the head of ABC, was one person who made a difference there. And you could see even when ABC, when she was still, she's not at Netflix, but when she was the president of ABC, you could see there was a difference in um, the programming that was being done there. So I wish we could have more decision makers at that level. Then we'll start seeing real diversity happening in Hollywood or even, and you know, Hollywood is not just, Hollywood, I think Hollywood um, affects and infects um, creativity around the world. I'm really trying to pull away on just the idea that when your movie is in Hollywood, then it's a great movie. Um, I feel like independent filmmaking is really um, a platform that we should embrace where your film should be shown in bigger and even better platforms than just Hollywood. There's BAFTA and there's, there's even the Africa, the South American scene. And I mean, there's so much, there's so many, the Asian scene, there's so many other platforms that we can increase diversity and we should embrace as, as artists and as filmmakers as goals where we are targeting to place our films. Yeah, I was going to ask you a little bit about the independent scene and, and kind of what's driving that, um, you know, what, what you think the state is of that and, and where is it heading? You know, are there challenges in that area as well, as you're seeing, seeing in Hollywood to address some of the issues that are still plaguing some of the actors and um, diversity going on there, too? Um, I, I'll really I'll say this. I'm I'm so glad that technology has allowed independent filmmaking to become rampant that right now there's so many other platforms that have allowed that uh i put independent filmmaking in quotes um very accessible to different people before this independent filmmaking was accessible through uh film festivals the can and which are i don't think right now are just independent they've become very commercialized very um yeah, nowadays they're super commercialized. But the Sundances and the Cannes and the Telluride Film Festivals, those for a while were the only platforms where people could see independent filmmaking. But I think right now when we have uh, digital platforms have made independent filmmaking very accessible, even Netflix and Amazon and Hulu are just the bigger platforms. But even within those big platforms, they're even smaller platforms that are allowing people more and more to be able to place their films where people can actually pay 99 cents or a dollar and have great exposure and still flourish as independent filmmakers. Got it. And you mentioned like some of the markets that you think are really hot right now. What are you seeing back in your home country? Or, or is that something that you're trying to bring to that region? People have embraced um, Netflix. Kenya, I'd say, is super ahead. Kenya is one place, and Kenya and Nigeria are one of the few countries in South Africa where you go to those countries, you'll be able to, it, it would feel like you haven't left the U.S. in terms of accessibility of the Netflix and the Amazons and those kind of platforms. 
Um, they're, right now, Kenya is not very good with making money on the big theater. Most of the money in, where film is concerned is made through the digital platforms, and that's where a lot of the filmmaking is going to. I still want to build and grow the theater platforms and the film festivals, which I feel are very important, especially for students, because students can't afford to to be elbowing with professional filmmakers they don't have that kind of budget but film festivals they are still they still allow a category for students and that category is where you find the netflixes and the amazons coming to look for great filmmakers at the level of high school or college so i feel like especially for africa and kenya we really need to boost the film festivals there so that to open that market where we can invite distributors to come and look for great films so that the student is not left or trying to compete with professional filmmakers, and yet they don't have the same kind of budget. So, yeah, that's one of the things that I really would love to change. Yeah, so uh, switching topics a little, I'm curious what, because I feel like uh, when we fail is when we learn the most. And I'm curious, early on, what was, like, one of your biggest failures, in your opinion, or something that really, like, opened your mind and maybe like made you think that this uh this uh Hollywood wasn't for you maybe or something that you probably would have like changed your mind to do something else wow that's a great question because I have failed so many times people (laughs) it's crazy um well you're the only one in this call that has done that so shame on you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, right? you know, we, we only hang out with winners here right? uh, I don't know if we should continue or not <laughs> I have been fired for, in jobs for opening my before speaking up and I have a story where yes as a black woman you said things that you shouldn't have said you should have put your head down and kept your mouth shut um, I, I think I've lived that in every single one of my jobs by the way <laughs> So you know what I'm talking about. I do. And and yes. it's even worse when you say something like an hour ago and then everyone starts to repeat it and they claim it as if they said it all along. That's also fun, too. Uh-huh. Um, I've had moments where I probably pitched something and felt so stupid because people think, ugh, why would we want to do that? Um. And maybe the story was based on Africa. I remember for such a long time, I could not understand why people kept telling me Africa is never going to sell. Black black film is not going to sell. And that's, I was one of the people who was so excited when Black Panther made so much money because I was like, in your face, people. Because I've heard that over and over and over and over again. That story wouldn't sell. Who is in that story? Where, where can we, who's going to buy that? Or I, my ideas just sound so outrageous or... Somebody once told me um, after I was we were pitching something with with a business partner of mine and and they looked at me they looked at both of us and were two young women trying to tell a story I think at that point I was really even very fresh in the business and they said have you thought of se- selling rotisserie chicken that will probably be better for you and I was like you gotta make it so yeah there's so many stories and so many history chicken yes i know right (laughs) okay yeah like that would be better than what we're trying to do um so there's so many times i have 
wanted I've never I don't think I've wanted to quit but I've wanted to give up if that makes sense. Um give up in the sense that I'm not going to be honest with the kind of story that I want to tell. Um I'm just going to sit and work for somebody else. But quitting the business is something I can't do because I don't I've never done anything else but this. For me I've always been a filmmaker all my life since like I said from I've been writing stories since I was a kid. I've been in the entertainment business since I was a child. So for me I can't imagine what else would I do. I I'm not going to work for a bank. I'm not going to be I'm, I I don't have, have Shane's skills of being uh an investment banker those are very <laughs> specific smart people who have those kind of skills i don't think i ever had it either <laughs> that's why i left <laughs> so yeah so it's it's the giving up i've thought many times i let me just sit behind <laughs> the studio or beside a production company and work quietly but the funny thing about when you have passion within you at some point it will show itself and what always ended up happening is either the job ends or i get fired so that's when it brings me back to okay i really need to follow my dream um and this is why again i go back to that's why i want to train other people that's why i want to inspire other young people and give them this whatever it is that i have and pour into them so people can remain and be real to what it is that they are what their calling is I call it a calling because I believe it's a calling that you have for your life. Yeah, building off of that a little bit, um that calling, what was that what was the experience for you that you realized like I love this. I want to I wanted this for mess like the rest of my life. <clears throat> kind of that rocky moment moment where you got over an obstacle and you were like, "Man, I can do anything." Did you have kind of a moment in your career like that? I think it's actually um <laughs> that's interesting you ask that. Um it's haunting because sometimes i yell at god why did you make this thing not die in me it's almost like you can't run away from it um just when i got my letter to come into harvard i actually felt that because i think i was working for a company i was working on a show called well let me not say the show because it's still it's still being shopped around but it's a show a car show believe it or not it's a like a documentary series on cars. Yes, you can laugh. I worked on a show on cars. I was like one like two women with like 15 guys or 20 guys. Are you kidding, I want to know. I want to be on that show. <laughs> It was I love cars. Life. Yeah. I know everything about cars now. Um but at that point I was really getting discouraged because I felt I I want to I want to travel. I want to do shows. I want to do something different and I really needed a shift and just at that moment is when I got my letter to come to to Harvard and that I feel I I think I felt that feeling then because it was really taking me to a to the different trajectory or different direction almost like taking me to the place where I've always wanted to be and dream at the next level of my life so I think that's one point that I felt really charged and excited about the next phase of my life Yeah, I like yeah, I like that a lot, the calling. Shane, we didn't name this uh podcast the calling. But I'm sure we I think I I think we all have kind of experienced that feeling when pursuing our dreams. So I really like you here. I like to hear uh I like to hear about what you've gone through. Thank you. Uh that was amazing. Sure. So let me ask you this. What's the carbon footprint that you want to leave? What's the impact on humanity that uh you're dying to do because I know you 
have some big plans? I love that question. Um, I really do. That's such a great question, the carbon footprint that I want to leave. Um, I think I want to, not I think, I know I want to train the next person. I want to inspire the next person. I want the next person to have, to be able to, to light the fire. I feel like whatever is burning within me, I want to pass on that flame to them and see what that can do for them and how that little glow, even though it's a little glow that I give them, um, will spark something incredible for them because I believe the next person will always bring something greater than what even I have. Just like the people ahead of me, what it is that they put in me. I always, um, I'm always grateful because to my parents because they're the two people, my mom and my dad are the two people who always supported me, even when I had the craziest dreams or the craziest aspirations. Um, when I told them after being in Howard and I told, told them, hey, I want to move to California. And they're like, uh, okay. And I want to work in Hollywood. And they're like, do we know anybody there? No, but I'm going to pack my car and move out there and I'll start my journey of being a filmmaker. And they're like, okay, crazy person, but we shall support you. And that encouragement truly continued fanning the fire within me that became the flame and a bigger fire and a bigger fire. That's why I feel like I really want to give this fire to the next person. And right now my passion is really to build a creative arts school in Kenya and uh, in Africa um, that is really going to inspire young people and um, make, and in a way, have them grow in their art, whatever that art is, be it performing arts, be it filmmaking, whatever that art is, just inspire them and train them and pour into them everything that I have learned in my journey and have them even teach me because it's definitely a two-way um, kind of education. Um, yeah, I'm thinking as I'm talking, that's why you're hearing the mini arms. So that's that's kind of what I really want to do. That's the kind of footprint I want to to leave in somebody else's life. I love it. And it sounds like you're starting to plant the seeds to start doing that now, right? Absolutely. That's that's the goal. And uh speaking more on like how your dream has always been filmmaking and stuff like that and a lot of people don't really a lot of people find it funny when you like tell them you want to be a filmmaker or be in Hollywood and stuff like yes, that. Absolutely. And how was it uh, with your family growing up? Did they support you? Did they tell you it was like a crazy dream or like your friends also? I'm curious how that, that worked out. My immediate family went with me. I mean, I, I remember one time my father actually articulating what I do. And I was like, go, dad, you actually found because it was very hard to bring into words what that means, especially in Kenya, because we didn't at that time being a filmmaker didn't mean what it was an actor. No, a filmmaker, a journalist. No, a filmmaker. Um, storyteller. Yeah, but you're, you know what I mean? It, I really had to. Um, define what that meant. There was nothing that looked like that at the time. We didn't have the kind of films we have now. And if we did, it was some white guy who came and did those kind of films. So it was something that looked like was way out there that is not possible in Kenya at all. 
So my family just walked with me and whatever wind, however the wind kept going and changing is that's they kept building the foundation under me and building a foundation under me. And even when I fell, I felt like I fell, then they would come and pick me up and would continue walking that journey. Friends wise, absolutely. There's so many friends who have told me, Nemo, you chose a poor career, meaning it's yeah. you're not making money. It's how, what are you going to eat? Your, do you know how many films fail out of the ones that are made? Who's going to pick up your show? It's not, it's not guaranteed. What's your backup plan? Especially the whole backup plan. I've heard it so many times. What's your backup plan? And I'm like, does a doctor have a backup plan? So why should I have a backup plan? Yeah, I definitely hear that all the time. Yeah. A doctor doesn't have a backup plan. I mean, it's, he's a doctor and I'm a filmmaker. So, so yeah, I've heard and it's so many times been discouraged. And sometimes that has come true. Like when I lost my job after the Writers Guild of America, that was right, uh, the Writers Guild of America strike. That was right at the time when there was the great, when everything, the financial recession um, in the U.S. So it was a very tough time all around for everybody. So you can imagine at that time is when I'm trying to do a documentary to get money from people who have no money. Um, so it was a very trying moment. But the truth is, be be true to who you are. Be true to who you are. Oh, yeah, of course. No, at the end of the day, that's what this is all about, right, is being authentic. And, you know, I think it's something we start to struggle with here, especially in the U.S., I feel like our culture is eroding and degrading so much. What what are you seeing in kind of the limelight um, in terms of culture, and what what is your opinion of it? Oh wow! How long do we have? I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, it saddens me because. I think America does have a culture, but it's not embraced because everybody else is trying to become better than the other person. I think when you speak of culture, there's a sense of community and building each other up that comes with a sense of the word culture. But in America, it's felt um, more and more lately, maybe not before as much as now, that people are tearing each other down and that's what is eroding is the community is the the feeling of togetherness and there's no way a culture can be able to be born or kept or retained or or preserved if people are not um building each other if people are not embracing each other there's so much uh there's so many walls other than the obvious walls there's so much wall so many walls between people um this person hates that person we're trying to seclude ourselves this is us this is ours those are them this is us define who you are there's so many boxes are you are you black are you white are you green are you this their gender whatever there's so many things that have created separation that a culture can it's not a conducive or incubator for a culture to grow it's very it's unhealthy it actually poisons that culture so for me, that's what is sad about this community. I wish first we would start with embracing each other, loving each other, accepting each other in order to be able to bring up, to build, to have that fertile ground to build a culture. Um, because culture means community, means embrace, means together. And have you seen this toxic environment in other countries from your experience? So can you kind of see where this is headed? 
It's hard to say. Of course, there's been projections. I've been told in Europe. I've never lived in in Europe. Um, I've, the biggest countries I've lived in, the other countries I've visited, but the, the countries that I've lived the longest is is the U.S. and Kenya. Kenya was younger. The U.S. I've lived here as an adult, so I understand this culture more than any other um, country. Um, to tell you the truth, Shane, I, I would hate to predict doom. I have so much hope. I'm the kind of person who walks hoping that next year will be better than this year. And the next um, the next decisions we'll make as, a, as mankind will be better than the decisions we're making now. So I can only hope that things are going to get better in all honesty. That's the hope I have. Yep. And the only way you can do that is pass it down and make sure that that knowledge transfers, right? Right. What do you guys feel about that? That's a, that's a question I'd love to hear what the rest of oh, you. Oh, man. I'll let you guys start. Um, yeah, I think optimism is definitely – I tend to be a pretty optimistic person as well. I mean, I was talking to a few of the – like a few of my friends, and especially like this year for me has been really tough academically. I just have a lot going on, a lot of homework, a lot of work. I have recruiting – and I have, you know, this carbon podcast, which I love, and a bunch of other involvements that I'm passionate about. But at the end of the day, they do take up a lot of time. But, you know, I, I still try to keep a positive attitude. And I think that's one of the most important things to have, not just in the workplace or, or in an organization, but just in general. Because, I mean, I remember in high school, I was pretty negative about a lot of things. I was a pessimist. And the of negative effect that it had on my general mental well-being was, was pretty bad. So, Optimism is definitely key. And then kind of seeing that, yeah, you know, especially in the U.S. today, there's a lot, still a lot of systematic issues and there's still a lot of discrimination and inequality going on. But seeing the fact that, A, more and more people are at the very least becoming aware of what's going on and the fact that we have awesome people like, like you and others that are taking real initiative to fight against the inequalities that still exist within our system today is something that keeps me optimistic realistically and gives me hope that, yeah, you know what, things aren't great right now, but hey, you know, 15, 20 years in the future, if we continue to have really inspirational people that really, really take initiative and take solid action to fix the problems that are in society today, who's to say that we won't be living in a, in a better place 15, 20 years from now? And who's to say that the next generation won't have to deal with the same level of discrimination? And you look at where the United States was 50 years ago, it was, it was absolutely way worse. And I'm not saying it's good right now, but I'm saying seeing improvement is something that I guess gives me hope that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with Jason. Um, except sometimes it's kind of hard to stay optimistic when there's so much going on and you're having to fight. But I think honestly, the fight is what makes it interesting. What makes it fun having to get up every day and try to better yourself and just keep that positive mindset. <clears throat> um, also with kind of like my friends with Gilbert, uh, I, I like to grind with him and I, I try to, help him out whenever I can to kind of create our own culture and we can build each other and kind of raise each other to new levels. Um, and I really want to see Jason do well and I want to see Shane do well and I want to see you do well. So I do have that optimism and I do see United States, like Jason said, it's, it's definitely better than what it was, but I'm hoping for a better future for sure. So you want me to go? All right. So mine's not so rosy. Um, I, I struggle with this because, as you know, at Carbon, this is the type of stuff we 
try to think about uh, globally. And as I look at this country here specifically, I worry about the education gap that exists. Um, I, I, I value the people on this line and all the others that are, you know, very educated and driven and setting the example. I think we need more of that. I, I am concerned that the masses are falling behind and moving backwards. Mm. And the thing that troubles me more too is actually one of our biggest threats is what's going on with our weather. And when you look at the debt ratios that exist uh, for people in this country and when a natural disaster hits, they're literally wiped out starting from below zero, right? I mean, they're not even starting with a clean slate. They literally have to figure out how they stitch their lives back together from what little they already had. And this is happening more and more. And with the cost of education rising and the wealth gap um, expanding almost exponentially, it's, you know, it's one of those things. I don't know if anybody can really ever catch up. And then you layer on what's going on with our reality culture that has now kind of set different expectations and norms in the youth, um, both for um how you treat each other, how you start relationships, how you keep relationships. Uh, I, I don't know what that world looks like. Um, and it's a bit troubling to me, honestly. And I also look at like what's eroding in the arts, also in, in trade skills, the ability to do things like you would do in shop class. All that manual um, capability is is being taken away. And I don't know who's going to be left to be able to fix things or create things with their hands. Uh, you know, that piece of our economy is going away very quickly. Mm. That is hopeless. That is true. <laughs> and I think that that's where I get my um, zeal to want to make a to make a difference for my part, what I can do, because I feel like even in that we all have a responsibility responsibility to fix what's around us or what's reachable, whatever my diameter around me or my radius around me that I can reach, um, then I should fix that area. And if we all picked that area, just put out your hand and just draw a circle with the radius around you, fix that area, I think then that would cover the whole world if we all had that sense of doing that. That means even the people within my radius that I can change or I can impact. Um, I feel like if we all did that, it would start propelling or creating um, a wave of where everybody's bringing change. In, no, in the- I agree with that. And, you know, as, as you know, we're big fans of authenticity, uh, but more fans of individuality. And I think yeah. if people can really break out of the norm and not just have to go with the flow, but be something that they really want to be and be the best at it. But if they can also have an obligation to make an impact along the way, that's how I see the tides turning because the systems that exist and the ones that are in power are holding on for dear life. It's very, it's very similar to what you saw in South Africa during Mandela's reign, right? Where, Out of fear of the masses actually understanding what really goes on, Mm -hmm. 
you know, that's what's being tried to kind of be kept in place. And I think we're going to go live through this area of disruption. Um, but in this age of transparency, I love the fact that people who really have have had no clue what really goes on in our government are actually getting into power and asking these questions as if, you know, they're a child. Yeah. Because most of us don't understand what assumptions are being made. And I think it's good for the American public to see that. I mean, it does make you question how somebody like that can actually get to that position. True. But it's healthy that those questions are being asked because so much has been assumed or bought or what other systematized nonsense that we have that needs to be disrupted so individuals can thrive. I'm, uh, I'm curious to know who, if there's anyone like specific that like inspires you maybe, or like when you're a child and you're uh, wanting to be in the film industry, who inspired you to want to uh, pursue this career? Um, Nemo, you're talking to Nemo, right? I, I thought it was um, <laughs> Shane because Shane was talking last week. I'm assuming it's me you're, tell- you're asking, right? <laughs> Hello? Gilbert, you there? Yeah. No, yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. for me. That's for Nemo. He doesn't care about me. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. You yeah. guys to laugh at my jokes because I can't be cracking jokes here and you guys don't laugh. I feel like you've got <laughs> standing here like, okay. It's okay. We're used to doing it with Shane's jokes anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See? There we go. <laughs> Jason's funny. <laughs> um... Um, I think my biggest person up till today that I really love is Myra Nair. Do you guys know who Myra Nair is? No, I don't. She's an Indian um, filmmaker. And she did... Um, oh, I thought she made rotisserie chickens. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Um, she, her latest film is Queen of Katwe. I don't know if you watched that. It was on Disney with, um, David Oye. De, oh, oh, okay. I can't, I'm not even going to attempt to say his last name. And Lupita was also on that movie as well. Did any of you watch Queen of Katwe? No, I've never watched it. No. It came out uh, in 2016, I, right? Mm. Yes. That's a great movie about a Ugandan girl from the slums of Uganda who wins championship in chess you have to watch that oh man oh, that sounds cool i've never heard of it that's very inspirational um she also did new york i love you it was different filmmakers who put together different films please tell me you watched that one and it was um on love but different films short films that have been put into one big film and she was one of the filmmakers on that one she did one soon wedding she's literally an independent filmmaker so she's always been since I was a kid, the first movie I ever watched of hers, and don't laugh, is Mississippi Masala that had Denzel Washington. And I was like, oh, my gosh, who is this? And it was beautiful. I remember it was so brightly colored. She she intentionally makes her movies 
very brightly colored. It's almost like it's a drawing. You're reading a drawing, a, a kid's drawing book. It's that beautiful. The oranges stand out. Her cinematography is incredible. So I've always admired Myra, Myra Nair, the fact that she grew up in Kenya. She lives in Uganda. Um, she's, I, I, yeah, she's a Harvard alumna. And now that I'm going to be a Harvard alumna, I even love her more. It's, mm-hmm. um, that's a kind, that woman has always been my biggest inspiration. Um, the fact that she's a woman and she's from India. So I can imagine what her journey is. I would love to sit with her and hear more about her. Um, and for is that, a pass the mic shout out for you. Is that who you would love to, uh, absolutely great. Now you have to reach out and get her for us. That's I perfect. Will do that. I would love to. So she's one of my biggest inspirations. That's fantastic. Wow. So what else haven't we asked? What do you what do you want this world to look like in five, ten years from now? Or your world at least. Let's look at it that way. The questions are so deep. That's what we do here, man. <laughs> it's like soul searching here, guys. <laughs> yeah. These are our inner thoughts, right? These are the things that, you know, not everybody surfaces all the time. Yeah, yeah but but I, you'll be playing it back, and I'll be like, did I just confess that? Yes, <laughs> you did. Um, hmm. That's a big question. My, I, I'm really thinking right now. I would love, love, I, I love storytelling. I love hearing stories from different parts of the world. Um, Fernando Morelis is another filmmaker that I love him, and he did City of God. Have you guys watched City of God? Great movie. Uh, that sounds so familiar. Oh, it's with um, is it with is it in Brazil? Yeah, it's like in the the favelas. Yeah, I remember that. I remember. Oh, yeah, I think I've, I've, I've heard of it. it. I just haven't seen it. Oh gosh, please write these movies down because they're so phenomenal. I've got a list. And it's so <laughs> real. And I understand. I I I I didn't know Rio was. Rio's real story. You know how you hear Rio is like this from a very touristy point of view, but, but I love stories told from different parts of the world because they help me travel in my mind or travel. I literally leave my home and go there and you don't go there as a tourist through the stories. You go there and become one of the local people. For me, that's the journey I love about um, storytelling. Um, of course, Roma that everybody is buzzing about that won the Academy Award. Um, and I could totally connect with Roma because I grew up with help. In Kenya, we have a lot of help. Um, and so the help becomes part of your family. And that's what this movie is about. The help was part of this family. And it's it's back in the 70s. And so for me, I would love to see a, a platform of more international or worldwide storytelling with different faces and different um, filmmakers. That's one dream I would love to, to see. Secondly, I would love to see marginalized groups really empowered people today who are considered less of um, in the next five, 10 years, I would really love to see those people empowered. Um, wow. That's great for me and you, Akib. Yeah, I know. That's the problem we've always had. The underserved of the underserved that nobody gives a shit about. Exactly. Those people who are 
we never hear the voices. They have a voice. Everybody has a voice. I would, it would be so beautiful if we had zero marginalized groups, that that word doesn't even exist, that we don't have people who are considered less of minorities or the people on the sides. I would love to see that. Me too. Same. <laughs> and what's, uh, what's something that you haven't done yet that's like, one of your biggest dreams. I would love to hear what you guys answer that five to 10 year question, by the way, before I answer that one. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah tough. I guess for me, I mean, five to 10 years, honestly, like they ask a lot, they ask this question a lot in like job interviews. And it's kind of crazy to think, cause that's half my life. 10 years ago, I was in fifth grade and I guess like 10 years from now, I mean, yeah, I think that point, that you were talking about where marginalized groups are getting empowered is definitely something that stands out to me. I think as an Asian kid, I'm, I'm in kind of an interesting position because I think there we are still like a, a pretty vast minority. I think we make up 5.6% of the population. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, I, I still feel like I think on campus, I think Asian people just still have this the, a lot of stereotypes swirling around us. I know when I was applying to college, I think this is pretty the most insane, in my opinion, example of a time that i was like just stereotyped was i played a lot of violin in high school not because my parents wanted me to but because i thought the violin was was dope and i loved the instrument but i remember applying to college and one of my guidance counselors told me not to write about violin in my essay because he said oh yeah it's too um it's too basic too many other asian applicants are gonna be writing about that and i remembered like thinking (laughs) how insane that was to me because I was like, what are you, what are you talking about, man? Like, I, I played the violin for 10 years. Like, this is, you know, I've played in statewide level orchestras. I played in the orchestra every year since I was eligible. This is a big part of my life. And he's like, yeah, I try not to write about that. And then he also told me not to write about a bunch of other things. Like, he told me not to write about like math and science and to avoid specific topics that would make me seem more Asian, which I mean, to this day, I think is so kind of rubs me the wrong way. And I think in the future, I guess specifically for me, I'd love to see like those stereotypes fade into the distance and I'd love to see diversity of Asian Americans in not just the arts and media, but across the board. I'd love to see more Asian American musicians, more Asian Americans films. I know Crazy Rich Asians was kind of like the catalyst for that. And I'd love to see more of that going on. But yeah, I'd love to see people kind of realize that, you know, Asians aren't just in America to be software engineers, mathematicians and accountants, but we can really be anything that we want. So I guess more specifically, uh, when talking about like empowering marginalized groups, I'd love to see that for, I guess, my own group. Yeah, Jason hit it on the head for me, too. Um, growing up, coming from Guyana, everything's been so ambiguous for me, kind of when I'm filling out those fill-in-the-box uh, fill things. Because you're from Guyana, and you have descendants from uh, India, but you're from Latin America, so you get these boxes that say, <clears throat> are you African-American? Are you Latino? Are you Asian? Are you this? Are you that? It's just, it was just something that was so difficult for me growing up to just fill out because there's nobody else like you. So you kind of have no voice like where you're talking about. And I hope from maybe 5, 10, 15 years in the future that people like me will have kind of that voice or that spot in which we can actually kind of fit in and have our own uh, have our own space. Um, yeah, that's where I see the world. I hope to see the world in five to ten years. <clears throat> yeah, and I def. I mean, we all come from different countries uh, around the world, so I also believe that I 
coming well, uh, my parents that come from Colombia, a uh, very poor country. I would I would say still, I would love to just people from those countries like that to have like a bigger voice because they don't have all the technology we have, and it's definitely something that every time I go to Colombia, it's just eye opening seeing like where we are in the United States and how behind they are in those in uh in our countries. Awesome. Yeah, and for me, I guess since we're talking about voices and everything, I would love to see abolishment of the electoral college voting from your phone and eliminating this nonsense of having to go to the polls when you know, there's Mars landings happening and all sorts of different technology <laughs> out there. And this is literally counting one by one. Um, I think that and also, I, you know, to Gilbert's point, I wish it would be mandatory in the U.S. Uh, that everyone takes a DNA test so they can just see how diverse their backgrounds are. So we I can stop this nonsense. I, and yeah, going, going to that, like, I feel like everyone should have to like travel go to these countries and 100%. Just, like, see because like one thing that I'm very happy that my parents made me do was like when I was like in third grade they uh would start sending me to Colombia and uh staying there for like a week or two weeks and just you realize how crazy like how easy you have it in this country and it just makes you more grateful about everything everything we get here yeah exactly i i I spent a lot of time in guyana and it's just so uh eye-opening to see just the just kind of just the culture there and the level of infrastructure just things like that and i know you wanted to hear about why i want to do politics and i see a potential in guyana for me to kind of i have a huge kind of love for guyana and i i hope to go back there and kind of build the country up Mm. but yeah yeah go ahead go ahead no, I just said I love that. Sorry. Yeah, it's just it's it's been a passion of mine. My dad was a politician, so it kind of runs in the family. Um, so that's kind of where I want to end up. That's beautiful. Wow. So there you have it. You weren't expecting that. So boom. I know. I'm so blown away. I'm like, wow. Yeah, these are kids from Indiana University, not them habit kids, too. See? Seriously. <laughs> see, that's why I get so inspired, like I was saying earlier, to part, part, to train and lift and empower people because um, I can't imagine that light in each one of you being killed by somebody else because you look different or you're from um, a different part of the world. Oh, trust me, it's hard. I, um, I love Guyana so much, but and don't get me wrong, I don't hate this, but I really don't like when people just assume I'm from India or something. It kind of takes me off a little bit just because I love Guyana so much and I love that distinctness I have, that diversity I have that nobody else has. And I'd never want that to be taken away from me. Yeah, yeah and going uh, to like what Akib's saying, like I know me personally growing up in a small town in Indiana where there's no one of color like i when i was like in third fourth grade i i wasn't not that i wasn't proud i was kind of scared to like embrace where i was from and like slowly growing up is when i like started realizing like 
wow, why should I have to try to be like everyone? I could like be proud of where I'm at and just embrace it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's important. Thanks, guys. That's really inspiring. Wow. Wow. So we flipped this around, man. You were, you we, totally you were supposed did. to inspire us. <laughs> no, it's a two-way thing. It's a two-way relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. No, this has been great. I, I look. I know we've been on here a while, but uh, you know, I don't know if there's any last questions. But you've been an extremely amazing participant and guest, and we hope to pass the mic to your Indian friend that's making chickens. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. I think somebody did ask me a question. I said, I'm not going to answer until you guys tell me inspiration. I don't know if you still want me to answer that or we can drop the mic at this point. No, yeah, of course. We definitely would still want to hear about it. I can't What remember. was the question? Do you remember? <laughs> no. I think Gilbert asked it. Yeah, it sounded like Gilbert. Um, no, I, yeah, I don't remember what it was. All right. Drop better. the mic. <laughs> <laughs> well, here we go, guys. Nemo Mathenge, authentic individual. This is the power of one. Right there. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It's been such an honor and such a pleasure. <laughs>